I've studied the form of comics intimate. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, even a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. That's my official mandate, but what you'll see is that nowhere in that list of topics that I'm supposed to talk about is music. But sometimes I just can't help myself. I listened to every single uh, Smashing Pumpkins album the other day, starting with Gish, and then going right on through to Makina 2, The Friends and Enemies of Modern Music, which was their final album. Yes, Makina 2 is the final Smashing Pumpkins album. Now, apparently there's some other band out there who uses the name Smashing Pumpkins and they release albums and stuff, but those yahoos can't possibly be the Pumpkins because the real pumpkins broke up back in the year 2000. Anyway. So, I listened to all of their albums the other day, right? And it was totally awesome. And what I discovered, I mean, it's it's weird 
how certain songs can remind you of stuff, you know? Like, for example, I can never hear the song Disarm without thinking of Galveston's horrible, horrible fucking beaches because the first time that I ever heard Disarm, I was at one of Galveston's horrible, horrible fucking beaches. 1979, the song 1979, reminds me of being a freshman in high school. You know? The possibilities of things. At that time, I I joined the tennis team, I had a girlfriend, and my clearest memory of that entire school year is fun. That's what 1979 as a song makes me think of. I know nothing and care even less about what the song is about. Because to me, it's not about anything except maybe being a young, stupid teenager doing young, stupid teenager stuff with other young, stupid teenagers. I mean, let's face it, you're all old enough to know better, you know? The subtle, smug, douchebaggery of being 15 years old and already on top of the world. Perfect makes me think of an ex-girlfriend who had a much higher opinion of her singing abilities than I did. And God knows, than I do. I mean, that chick. Shit. Talk about dodging a bullet, guys. I mean, speaking of being, being young and stupid, I was only 22, but... I eventually became certain that whatever was in my future, it didn't include her. Now, it wasn't it wasn't just that I was a total commitment foe back then. Or at least that wasn't totally it. I mean, this is the same chick I I ditched one time at a movie theater so I could knock back some beers at a bar with this dude that I'd gone to school with and totally lost contact with. Does that sound like an asshole thing to do? Hey, total commitment, folks, remember? Anyway, whatever, don't judge me. So anyway, but she loved singing along to Perfect, which is why I associate that doofus with the song in the first place. Daphne descends... Well, suffice it to say that's dedicated to anybody who got dumped today. Or ever, I guess. Wound makes me think of that summer I spent delivering pizzas for Papa John's. A job that, by the way, I still look back on rather fondly. Now, I first heard Wound the day after I bought Makina 1 and played the entire CD on a loop in my car while I made my deliveries. And I swear to God, this must have gone on for like a week or even longer. And and, and kind of like my... Kind of like my freshman year in high school, I just, I look back on, at the summer of 2000. Well, I've had worse summers, put it that way. Jennifer Ever makes me think of the following summer, which is to say summer of 2001, which was a little bit more miserable. I've had better summers, put it that way. Jennifer Ever seemed appropriately melancholy which I found rather soothing back then 
The end is the beginning is the end makes me think of the summer of 1997. I mean, if I had to put a thumbtack in the map and say, yep, that's when it all changed, the summer of 1997 would be pretty much it. Not because of the song. The song just happened to be playing at the exact moments when it all changed. Tangential to all that, but when I hear the end is the beginning is the end, I can't help remembering the morning that I woke up in a very cranky mood because I was still wearing braces after all of these fucking years of wearing braces. You know, I can't help but think that a lot of grief could have been spared had someone just told me, hey, moron, your braces are coming off in about six months, so shut the fuck up and get a job. By the way, I got a job that summer. My first one ever, actually. It's been downhill ever since. The beginning is the end is the beginning came out that summer as well, but it makes me think of the Watchmen movie. For the same reason that everybody thinks of the Watchmen movie when they hear the beginning is the end is the beginning. Poor Selena of the vast ocean. It, it reminds me of everybody to whom I had to explain that Billy Corgan is saying poor Selena and not poor Selena. I mean, this is not a eulogy to a Tejano princess. So, what is the song about, you ask? Who knows? Who cares? It's a good song. Enough said. Where Boys Fear to Tread is another one of those songs that's not really about anything. Or, I, I guess if it is, it's about a cool, loud rock song by a cool, loud rock band with a cool, loud guitar riff pinning the whole cool, loud song into place. It's about how cool it is to drive around listening to that song when you're 17 years old. Back when you're convinced that you're the coolest thing to ever hit town. These days you're not so sure about that. But anyway, this is more of an atmospheric song than something that's specifically topical, at least in my mind. So yeah, I like the pumpkins. And you may be asking, Magnus, what in the holy hell does this have to do with anything? To which I can only reply, nothing and everything. Right now, I'm working my way through a, a mini-series called It's All About Image. In fact, today marks the beginning of It's All About Image. And the idea behind this mini-series is to kind of give a look back at image comics that I've got some amount of familiarity with, however limited it might be, and just talk about them, you know? And today's today's comic is going to be the Gen 13 miniseries from... 1994 and the reason for that is because it's first off starting starting off you know talking about gen 13 with the ongoing series just seemed a little that just seemed wrong to me somehow it to me it made more sense to start off with the mini series since 
more or less, this is actually where the team started. Now, I think they had an appearance in Deathmate or some such bullshit prior to their miniseries, but for all intents and purposes, basically the story of Gen 13 starts in this miniseries, right? And I just, I remember this as being a, a kind of, a kind of inspired time for me as a, as a comic book collector in as much as I was really beginning to, I guess, diversify uh, my comics and God knows my, my taste in comics, my collecting. And I was actually starting to read something other than uh, the Superman and the Batman titles and then, you know, Green Lantern and then the, and then the Flash basically move away from just those two, sometimes four characters and kind of build outwards, expand outwards. You know, read some Marvel comics, read some Image comics, read, well, the plan anyway was to read some Valiant comics, read some Ultraverse comics, etc., etc. You know, basically try to get a better intake of comics and I guess the possibilities of the medium. This is not to be disrespectful uh, uh, toward Superman or Batman or any other character, but it's just, I'd had very narrow collecting habits, shall we say, up to that point. And what I wanted to do was just try something new, you know? And the reason that I'd, I'd been kind of limited with the things that I collected was because my parents really wouldn't they didn't, first off, they never really liked the idea of me collecting comics in the first place. I am not shit-talking my parents. I love my parents. My parents love me. But we never, ever saw eye-to-eye on comics. They hate comics. They always have. They've never approved of me collecting comics. And it was only really against their will that they ever... that they ever really financially supported my my comics you know buying me comics because they loved me and so they wanted to do nice things for me but at the same time they never approved and so it was just a weird sort of give and take type of a situation so there you have it and so starting in it was probably around 1994, now that I start thinking about it. What mommy and daddy are willing to tolerate and put up with. For the first time, that was starting to not become enough of an obstacle for me when it came to collecting comics. And image comics were so plentiful back in those days. You know, if, you were, if you'd been kind of artificially confined to collecting only DC comics and you wanted to expand outward. Except maybe for Marvel, it's hard to get much more prevalent than Image back in the early to mid-90s. So, one of the titles that came on my radar before too long was Gen 13. And I guess the, the shtick of, of the Gen 13 concept... I don't know. I, I kind of regarded that as being... See, I don't know as I want to go so, fa- so far as to say that it was basically an excuse um, to draw half-naked women 
half-naked teenage girls, really, you know, running around in their underwear and everything. I don't, I, I see, I don't want to, don't want to say that. But at the same time, you know, I, I found it kind of hard to believe that this was anything other than kind of like a schlocky action fest. Like, if this was a movie, it would be a, a, a kind of paint-by-numbers action movie starring teenagers, and they're running around with superpowers and all this stuff. And on the one hand, I didn't see a whole lot of artistic merit to this. On the other hand, I didn't see that there needed to be always some kind of deep, burning, artistic imperative behind every single fucking panel. You know, it's, sometimes it's enough for a comic book to just be filled with action and fights and gorgeous women and, you know, big guns and stuff. And you know what? There's fucking, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes, look, sometimes comics can be kind of like a, like a feast. You know, it's like a, like a six course dinner and, you know, you're trying different soups and then they bring out, uh, you know, a little bit of duck and then they bring out, um, fucking whatever, you know, fried monkeys brains, you know, fucking whatever it's going to be. And, you know, you have this just amazing dining experience. And you can have that with comics. But sometimes all you want is fucking Taco Bell. You know, that's what you want. And to me, Gen 13 is, was, and will always be Taco Bell of comics. I'm not trying to denigrate any artistic merits that the Gen 13 concept and Gen 13 comics may have. I'm just saying that... This never struck me as being anything other than more of a, an attempt to just make fun comics. And to tie it all back with the Smashing Pumpkins, the reason I ever talked about them so much in this episode was because the creators of, Sma of uh, not Smashing Pumpkins, the creators of Gen 13 wanted these to be basically teenagers and young adults of their time, you know? And they wanted them to wear the clothes that you know, people my age were wearing. They wanted them to have the haircuts that people my age had. They wanted them to listen to music that people my age listened to. I mean, this was one of the first times I can ever remember looking at a comic and thinking, this is intended for me. I'm supposed to relate to this on every single level. You know, the clothes, the hair, the music, all that stuff. This is supposed to be me on a comic book page. <clears throat> And I could totally picture the members of Gen 13 pretty much unanimously. I could, well, maybe not Rainmaker so much, but I could picture all the rest of them listening to Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, like for those of you who don't remember, back in 1993, 94, 95, to be young was to be virtually overexposed to the Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, they were fucking ubiquitous. And, you know, luckily they had the talent to back it up. But there was a point when they were nigh inescapable. And because of that, I I remember that I was listening to... I was, I, I was going through a phase where I was obsessed alternately with the Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream album. And then the second... Uh, the uh, disc two of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And I was just playing those two CDs, just fucking back to back nonstop. And the first time that I read Gen 13 was I was actually getting ready to flip back to Melancholy and the, Inf and, uh, the Infinite Sadness disc, uh, disc two. 
I was finishing up Siamese Dream right as I was starting up reading Gen 13. And sometimes you listen to music while you read comics, and it has to be kind of acknowledged that the music doesn't really suit the comic that you're reading, you know? But you're, you like that song, so you're listening to that CD, and you like this, this comic, so you're reading this comic. But the two really have nothing to, nothing to do with each other. But sometimes, it really is perfect. They really do go together. And Smashing Pumpkins, at least in that vintage, and Gen 13, at least in that vintage, really do go together, you know? And I shall never believe otherwise. And so, you know, the entire time I'm sitting here reading this stuff, and I don't know. I mean, it, it, it it's one of those weird comic book experiences that you have sometimes where you are completely on board with what the writer and the artist and everybody else, everything that they're attempting to do. You are right there in sync with them. You know, and like I say, I'm not defending Gen 13 as some kind of just fucking high art. Believe me, I'd never make that argument. But like I say, I mean, sometimes what you want is a souffle of a comic. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And the entire point of this, you know, it's all about image miniseries is to talk about the good. Or at least the entertaining aspects of image comics, especially their, I don't want to say like their first couple of offerings, but I would say more their general beginnings, you know, the first couple of years of image comics, you know, and the things that were, that they were doing that at, on the one hand were virtually identical to what DC and Marvel were doing. And then at the same time, the things that they were doing that was so different than what was, than anything else that was coming out at the time, you know? And the reason I'm doing this is because, frankly, 90s era image comics takes a lot of shit on, on Facebook and social media, on the internet. You go anywhere, and you're going to find people who are shit-talking it, they're running it down, they're making fun, and <clears throat> it gives you two impressions. Number one, that all of these comics suck and they're no good. And number two that the people doing the bashing weren't reading this shit too. None of those two things are true. The comics, I think, were decent, if nothing else. And usually the people who are bashing on them today were collecting this stuff fucking obsessively back in the 90s. Don't let their, their I'm so hip bullshit fool you. They were following this stuff just as closely as you were. This I do affirm. So, anyway. Now... I guess to kind of get into the comics, um, this is Gen 13, number one, and this is, as I say, this is the first issue of the miniseries, not the first issue of the ongoing series, so that's something that you need to be aware of. But this, the synopsis for this entire miniseries is actually ridiculously easy to work through. International Operations, which is a government agency, started a quote-unquote, government internship for gifted youths, taking place in an isolated training facility. Following the manifestation of Caitlin Fairchild's powers, she flees the complex with Roxy Spaulding, grunge, burnout, and threshold in disguise. 
They're later joined by Sarah Rainmaker. The project is ultimately revealed to be a gathering of the Gen Active progeny of Team 7. Threshold tricks the group, Sans Fairchild, to return to base to help free the other kids, but upon their return, they are apprehended for further testing. With the help of Pitt and John Lynch, an operative of international operations, the kids finally escape. The end. <clears throat> and that's, I mean, yeah, I, I realize I maybe could have gone a little bit more in depth with that summary, but honestly, this whole thing, like I say, is a little bit of a souffle of a comic. And let's face it, I mean, there's a sense in which the bashers are kind of right. You know, the people who always make fun of image comics. I mean, <clears throat> I think they, they can be a little bit pretentious about it, but, you know, there's a degree to which, you know, they kind of have a point. Image Comics, especially in its first couple of years, really did live up to its name. And as much as anything, because of the fact that... Because of the fact that the comic book is a visual medium... Image, I think, put a very special premium on the art in their comics. And there are instances where their care and attention to the art somewhat comes uh, at, the uh, at the detriment of the story, right? Not always, and certainly it's not as bad as people want to believe, but there is a degree to which, you know what, that kind of has a germ of truth to it, you know? So to me, yeah, these are kind of neat characters, but when it comes to Gen 13, to me, what it really comes down to is J. Scott Campbell and his art, you know? So I'm not trying to denigrate any other aspects of Gen 13 as a story or as a concept. I just happen to think that, well, this is a very visual book, put it that way, you know? And that having been said, though, I will say that <clears throat> the writing by Jim Lee and Brandon Choi, this is not the, by no means is this the worst writing of Image Comics' entire history, right? It's just, they've made worse comics than this, believe me. They've made much worse comics, <clears throat> as far as writing is concerned. And excuse me while I get a drag off of my e-cig. Okay, just one more. Ah, that feels good. Now I'm getting a drink off of uh, my Coke here. Just, just another second, I'll be right back with you. <clears throat> yeah, good stuff. <clears throat> All right, so basically you've got here in the first issue, Caitlin Fairchild. She's sort of the stereotypical overachieving Ivy League college student. She's a little bit of a skinny mini bookworm and God bless her just doesn't really have all that much of a social life. She's got glasses the size of hubcaps and she's just, let's face it, a little bit socially retarded. And so it's because of that that it's really not that big of a stretch to find out that she get 
she could get suckered into the Gen 13 program under the auspices of it being some kind of a supposed internship for the summer. I mean, you know, she definitely questions it, at least on the one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, she is committed to success, and so she's not necessarily as street smart as maybe she needs to be. And so, whatever. I mean, the narrative needs for Caitlin Fairchild to end up in um, international operations here and after referred to as I.O. custody. And this is the shortest, most convenient way of getting that done. So that's what happens. Now, being as it was the 90s, and being as it's Image Comics, it's almost obligatory that there's some shadowy government agency that's up to no good. So the fact that it's almost a trope at this point, I'm willing to overlook that in as much as this is just a trope of comics at this time and to resent this trope of comics for being a trope of comics at this time. I don't know. To me, that's almost like failure to contextualize the comic book that you're reading. You know, not everything is meant to be filtered through the lens of the modern day. And in this case, you know, this is just what comics were like. They were a little bit schlocky in the 90s because deadlines were looming. The the speculator boom was ongoing. And actually at the time that this comic book came out, it had actually, the bubble had definitely burst, put it that way. And, but when this comic was produced, it was at pretty much the zenith of the uh, of the speculator boom and so that's how this comic book reads and so i what i'm saying is i'm not going to deduct points because of the fact that this comic book is so of its time rather than coming off as something a little bit more modern i'm just not going to do that you know so anyway through a weird series of machinations and bizarre events Caitlin Fairchild finds herself having fallen in with a group of basically it's other it's other supposed supposedly gen active uh kids who are about her age or maybe I always got the idea that the that the other kids, you know, um Burnout, Grunge, Freefall and Rainmaker, they were all at least a year or two younger than than Fairchild. She's actually in college, but the rest of these kids I always got the idea that they're basically supposed to be more teenagers rather than early 20-somethings. You know what? I could be wrong about that, but that's that's just the way I always read it. And to be fair, I really don't remember their ages ever being explicitly stated. So I think it's completely possible that they... that they're basically high schoolers, maybe seniors in high school or maybe juniors in high school, who's to say? And then it's it's Rainmaker, who's the oldest of the group, you know? God help you when a college student is your elder statesman. But the they she sort of has a little bit of a meet-cute with grunge, and then that's sort of her entree into the rest of the group, where you you see, you lay eyes on, on Roxy for the first time, and she's smoking, because you could do that, in comics back in these days, you know, characters were allowed to smoke. And I don't know. I mean, it's just of all the unhealthy things that the teenagers are routinely shown doing in entertainment media, I, I really don't understand how smoking is worse than anything else. But whatever. The fucking smoking Nazis have pretty much won that argument for whatever reason. 
So, whatever. Anyway. So, here's to you, anti-smoking Nazis. The other thing is, as far as Roxy's concerned, I don't know why, but she always seemed the most high school to me, you know? <clears throat> I don't, it, it, it would be a mistake to say that I knew teenagers who were like the rest of Gen 13. I mean, I'm familiar, and I was familiar with those characters, I guess, as archetypes, you know? You've got Grunge, he's sort of the irresponsible meathead. You've got Caitlin Fairchild. She's sort of the, the brain of the group and its natural leader. You've got uh, Burnout. He's the, he's the, the quiet ar uh, artistic type wailing away on his guitar. And then you've got Roxy, and she's sort of the party girl of the group. And of them all, I knew people like Roxy. And so for some reason, she was always the one that I connected to with the most. Does that make sense? So, anywho, I don't know why, but you know, this introduction to Roxy, it pretty much shaped my 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 view of her. I would say right from the start, you know? So, anyways, there you have it. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting is if you're familiar with this Gen 13 miniseries specifically, but really Gen 13 in general, as drawn by J. Scott Campbell, it's kind of weird how Campbell is kind of He's kind of finding his way with these characters insofar as developing a model is concerned. You're going to see it get refined over the course, even of this miniseries, and God knows with the ongoing series. But right, right here, beginning in this miniseries, you can recognize them as being who they are, but the model is still being perfected. And oddly enough, I think maybe Roxy is probably the best example where I kind of thought of her as being a little bit more petite in in the ongoing series, you know, she was a little bit more, she was just kind of short. Everyone knows those kind of short, sort of skinny type kids. And that's kind of who Roxy ultimately evolved into. But here in, in this mini series, it's like she's curvy and, and sexy because fucking it's image comics and all of their women have to be curvy and sexy. And it wasn't until a little bit later that, Roxy became a little bit more of her own character, I suppose. So you don't really see that quite as clearly on this page where grunge literally runs over Fairchild. But it, it's one of those things that just becomes... It, it subtly gets introduced more and more and more into this miniseries as time goes by. But you don't really see it so much on this first page with Roxy is what I'm saying. So anyway, so naturally she gets bitched out for smoking. And... From there, we get a little bit of a montage of the group basically working together in order to make it through all of their uh, all of their physical and mental tests and whatnot. And so, Roxy basically helps everybody with the more, I guess, intellectual aspect of their training and their tests and whatnot. And they help her with the more physical stuff. So from the get-go, they're able to work together as a team fairly well. Which works for me. So, it's it, it's almost like if this was 
a if, if this was a movie or a TV show or even like an an, like an animated series or what have you you would almost expect for there to be uh, some sort of alternative rock music of some kind playing as this montage is going on and I don't know I find all of that stuff actually rather easy to believe in myself so anyway it's the reason for that is because textually the the amount of genetic tinkering that all of these kids have been through by this point it basically gives them a, a sort of subconscious camaraderie with one with one another they're naturally drawn to each other because of all of this they're not even aware of it themselves but they basically what we're supposed to infer in this story is that these kids were actually collected from more or less the same part of the united states they subconsciously drifted closer and closer to uh uh, together just in the course of life's travels and so it's not a stretch of the imagination at all to think that they would naturally bond with one another as a group and considering that they're dis that they're being basically trained to become a sort of a covert par paramilitary type of black ops outfit it's important that they work together as a group and be able to use their powers to assist one another right so, what I'm saying is, there is a schlocky dimension to this story, but the I's are being dotted and the T's are being crossed with all of this. So, anyway. The worm turns when Fairchild basically gets, I shouldn't say overdosed, but she gets basically, she's given more stimulant to help her to help her powers manifest themselves. And then one night they do, they make her puke her guts out, but slowly but surely her powers start manifesting. And one of them is definitely super strength. She's basically, unknowingly, she's tearing apart metal doors and things like that, and basically shredding them. <clears throat> because she doesn't know her own strength anymore. Anyway, she goes looking for uh, the infirmary and she ends up getting interrupted, or perhaps she interrupts, grunge and freefall as they're having what you might call an intimate moment so i don't know if we're supposed to infer that grunge and fair uh sorry not fair child grunge and free uh freefall are knocking boots in this lab but if you i guess if you want them to have been knocking boots then yes that's what they were doing so it's all in how you look at it Anyway, so basically they get in it, they, they get sort of intercepted by a security guard who basically says, Hey, go back to your fucking rooms. You guys, you're all in, you're all unauthorized intruders. You're not supposed to be in here doing that number. A fight ensues. And then at that moment, Fairchild's powers fully manifest. And so it's not just super strength anymore. Although there's that. It's not just super strength anymore. It's it's as much as anything. It's actually a physical metamorphosis that she undergoes where before she was that sort of shy and skinny, dare I say flat, um, just type of bookworm schoolgirl. And now she's basically a swimsuit issue model is pretty much what it comes down to. Now... 
Speaking of that, I don't really think that it's ever explicitly stated anywhere in this miniseries, or for that matter, even in the ongoing comic, exactly what their the uh, the the kids' uh, superpowers are. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, just kind of summarize all that for you right now. So you've got Caitlin Fairchild, once an ordinary girl, Caitlin's muscles spontaneously in- increased in density granting her superhuman strength, agility, speed, and endurance. The manifestation of her gen active status caused her body mass and size to increase from a petite young woman into that of a statuesque Amazon, shredding her clothes in the process. Fairchild is by far the most intelligent of the group. And because something something this is comics, she's also Freefall's half-sister, although that doesn't really come out in this miniseries. Often, she's, she's portrayed as being either naively unaware of or mildly uncomfortable with her new curv- curvaceous figure. Bobby Burnout Lane, son of John Lynch, because something something this is comics. Bobby manifested the ability to generate and manipulate high-energy coherent plasma, which ignites on exposure to oxygen. He later develops the ability to fly, as well as certain psionic abilities. Roxanne Freefall Spalding Roxy is the youngest gen-active teen with the ability to control the effects of gravity on herself and on others. She can nullify gravity and float, or multiply it, which is to say make objects ultra-heavy. It's also suggested by some other characters that if she thought about it and used her powers to their fullest advantage, she could manipulate space-time as this, res- as this is related to gravity. And that's true, by the way. She has a crush on grunge and is jealous of Fairchild's physique. And after that, we start getting into stuff that relates really more to the ongoing series, so I'll skip that stuff. Anyway, moving right along, Sarah Rainmaker. Rainmaker can influence local weather systems, manipulating air currents to grant herself flight, and direct water with a gesture. Amplifier bands on her wrists augment her ability to project lightning. Rainmaker is Apache and is Stephen Callahan's daughter and Threshold and Bliss's half-sister, although again, that doesn't come out in this miniseries. Percival Edmund Grunge Chang. He's able to mimic the molecular structure of any material he touches and also partially bestow this effect upon others. Grunge is a surf rat who enjoys sleeping late. He possesses brown belts and five martial arts styles and has few, if any, redeeming characteristics, though he does possess a photographic memory that allows him to take the same classes as Fairchild does, much to her surprise, during the period that the team goes to college. And let's see, finally there's John Lynch, the team's mentor and father of Robert Burnout Lang. Lynch was the, was the leader of Team 7 and, and a close friend of all of the children's uh, parents. His eye has been replaced after he gouged it out as a result of a mental attack. Like all surviving members of Team 7, Lynch was granted powerful telepathic and telekinetic abilities that are highly unstable and dangerous. Because of this, he avoids using his powers when, whenever possible. So that's kind of a nice little breakdown because... I don't think any of that stuff is ever explicitly said anywhere in in the miniseries, or for that matter, even in the ongoing series. I truly don't remember anything ever ever saying, 
this is what these characters' powers are. So, anyway, so what we can say for sure, though, is issue number one ends with uh, Fairchild's powers manifesting. And then really after that, the next, really I would say the remainder of of the miniseries is talk for a while, fight for a while. Talk for a while, fight for a while, cliffhanger. Talk for a while, fight for a while. Talk, fight, talk, fight, talk, fight, cliffhanger, talk, fight, talk, fight. So, I mean, I can go through this sort of, you know, panel by panel, but, and, and, and kind of summarize the story that way. But honestly, I mean, once you get past that point in the story, it's just, it, it really is just talk and fight, talk and fight, talk and fight, talk and fight. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, it's, it's almost, it's almost beating a dead horse, uh, you know, to go through, to go through all of that stuff sort of one by one by one, you know, but what I'll say is that the art all through this, uh, all through this issue, which is issue number one is just incredible. But the thing about it is what really blew my mind is that, you know, Jim Lee, he was on an episode of fat man on Batman. And he said that, you know, during Wildstorm's heyday, you know, Wildstorm was producing so fucking many comics that no kidding, they were calling up their local Taco Bell and offering kids their jobs drawing comics because they needed all the help they could get. There were there there was just not enough talent for them to for for them to be able to you know and I, by this I mean enough talent established in the industry for them to meet the demand. So what they were having to do was recruit these kids that knew jack fucking shit about comics and basically have have them draw this stuff and nobody's ever come right out and said so but what i've always assumed is that j scott campbell he was one of those taco bell kids that jim lee just said hey you 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 can hold a pencil fuck here's here's gen 13 you know uh the first issue is due out in a couple of months so get it finished and so it's because of that it's easy to forget the fact that this guy is a fucking natural you know and there's this there's a degree to which you know what you almost want to call him a Jim Lee clone. And to be fair, I mean, I guess the Jim Lee influence is in some ways sort of undeniable. But at the same time, I never really thought of him as being a Jim a, a Jim, Jim Lee clone. I see kind of equal parts, Arthur Adams, a l- tiny helping of John Byrne, plentiful helpings of Jim Lee. I mean, I'm not living in denial here, guys. But I never really saw him as being just a Jim Lee ripoff. And I've been a big fan of J. Scott Campbell's art style for, you know, quite a number of years now. I mean, to me, he just draws fun, adventure comics. And this is, I think, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say it's best exemplified by Gen 13, but it's very well exemplified by Gen 13. I mean, you know, there are moments when the art is just a little bit crude. You know, anatomy is a little bit fucked up. Uh, I think sometimes proportions and uh, perspectives are a little bit off but you know he's headed in the right direction and when you keep in mind that this is some of his earliest work in comics and that he's still perfecting you know even and, and i mean like the most basic tricks of the trade like anatomy and physiology he's still getting that down while still main while still developing his own style you know i think he actually did an incredible job with this miniseries considering how little experience the guy has to draw from so, and like I say, 
he makes some incredible improvements in his in his art just as this series progresses. I mean, I'm flipping through issue two right now, and you have this moment where the IO guards basically wrap Freefall up in this sort of, I don't know what the fuck this thing's supposed to be. It's basically just like a really long nylon cord. She gets tangled up in that. And I can see major improvements in, first off, the model that uh, uh, Campbell is working with here. And basically, uh, Roxy is starting to look a little bit more like herself. But the other thing is, I guess, pacing, narrative, layout, storytelling and comics, perspective. All of these things are just slightly better here than they were in the first issue, you know? And then there comes a moment when Rainmaker basically causes a sandstorm to provide a distraction so that Grunge can uh, free Roxy. And she basically, like I say, she starts off the sandstorm and the IO uh, troops basically get swept away in this huge wave of sand. And... This is just, I mean, I'm sorry. This is just fucking, this is eye candy, guys. You know, uh, this isn't supposed to be, you know, sharp insights into the human condition or anything like that. This is just supposed to be a fun little battle. And it's it's just lots of fun. And it's actually right around that moment that uh, Freefall's powers manifest. And so she sends some, you know, a couple of, uh, a couple of guards uh, flying. And that's actually where she earns the name, Freefall. And... You know, through it all, I mean, you know, this is this is basically one huge fight scene, you know? And so on that basis, I refuse to, you know, rationally criticize it. You know, these characters, these villains that are, if I may, a little bit paint by numbers. They're a little bit schlocky. Um, I don't know. I just I just have a, uh, a lot of fun with, uh, you know, with these comics. And being, and this brings us, I guess, to issue number three. Being as this is an image in the early 90s, or getting into the, I guess, closer to the mid-90s at this point, you can't really have uh, an image comic book coming out that doesn't have a crossover with Pitt. So, of course, Pitt makes a, a guest appearance in, in, this, in this issue, and whatever. I mean, it's, it's really just more of a fight. And it, he doesn't really make... I mean, Pitt doesn't make, you know, I, I don't think a, a, a huge... Basically, he doesn't make as big a difference in this issue as he's going to in the next issue. Put it that way. But again, this is still more of a fight that's um, that's going on here. I mean, the 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 rest of the team has been basically recaptured, and so now it's Fairchild to the rescue. She ends up getting crosswise with Pitt along the way, so she and Pitt take turns beating the shit out of each other. And it's again, it's it, it's kind of a trope of especially '90s. Uh, superhero team-ups where, you know, the characters beat the hell out of each other for a little while and then they team up. And that's pretty much what's going on here. You know, Fairchild, oddly enough, really does hold her own with Pitt. She does, a, she makes a much better accounting of herself than you might first think. Like, if you know anything about Pitt and just what a bad motherfucker the guy is, she does very well for herself, considering. So, anyway. So, and like I say, I mean, it, it's just, it's 
this is just, it, it's more fighting, you know? Lots and lots of fights, you know, lots of action, lots of stuff blowing up, lots of, you know, characters running around and, you know, they're shooting these huge mega guns at each other and all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, again, this is just, it's one of those things, it, it really does defy rational analysis. And so if you try putting this stuff too far under, under a microscope, guys, it just doesn't work, you know? And so you're not really supposed to, you're not really supposed to. I don't know, process this in strictly analytical and rational terms. Guys, this is a fucking action movie. You know, that's my point. You know, just a big, dumb, schlocky, fun action movie with, you know, lots of fights, lots of superpowers, lots of stuff blowing up, lots of, uh, you know, buildings getting demolished and all that kind of stuff. It's it's just fun. This is, I mean, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, image, I think, especially in the early nineties, it was known more for, I think kind of overly just dark, you know, grim and gritty type comics. And this is not at all what gen 13 is. This is just a fun little comic book series, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, it's, and like I say, there's a sense in which it even kind of defies, you know, um, the kind, the type of summarizing that I would normally do with a comic book like this, because of the fact that really, I mean, you could probably fit like in a modern day comic, you could probably fit everything that happens in this comic into one or maybe two issues of a of a modern day comic. Of course, decompression being what it is, it would probably still be a five issue miniseries, but not the point. The point is, you know, this is so decompressed and it goes on so long. This it's. I would say it's gratuitous, but not in a bad way. You know, it's basically just lots of fun, lots of fights. And, you know, I guess an obvious thing to mention here is that, yeah, aspects of uh, of Gen 13, and I mean the team members, they they are somewhat similar to, to, to Marvel characters. I mean, Rainmaker, she can control the weather kind of like Storm. Burnout. Well, there is a human torch right there. But this is... I, I The way, I, the way I, I, I view stuff like that is this is... I guess an interpretation on those archetypes, right? It's basically another way of looking at those same archetypes, you know? it's not, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a copycat. I would say that this is more of an an alternative view. Does that make sense? I mean, if you want this to be Images X-Men, or maybe Generation X, as the case may be, I guess it can be. But, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't see why it has to be one thing or the other, you know? And let's face it, it's not like Marvel characters were always the paragon of originality themselves. So, anyway, so... To bring it all back, though, issue number five, uh, this is, it's basically, it's more badass art and, you know, a little bit of eye candy, at least as far as skin is concerned, you know, just these incredibly gorgeous, uh, women running around in their underwear, you know, getting into fights and it's, it's, I don't know, lots of stuff blowing up, lots of superpowers, you know, you've got, um, you know, grunge, he's using his martial arts and, uh, his molecular bonding powers, I guess, and all of this other stuff. He's doing his best to make the day. He's discovering, I guess, the upper limits of his abilities. And you've got Fairchild. She's running around kicking everybody's ass. And 
it's I don't know. I mean, this is there is a little bit of character development in all of this in as much as, you know, the characters by which I mean Gen 13, the members of Gen 13 as a team, they're they're basically learning the ropes as far as their powers are concerned, and this is their first real combat, you know? And I think this is one of the things about Gen 13 that I kind of connected to, at least when I was younger, was the fact that, you know, someday they're probably going to be an amazingly effective uh, fighting force, you know? But they're not there yet, you know? They're still learning how to use their powers. They're still learning how to work with each other. And shit, they're still growing up. I mean, let's not overlook the obvious. It's not like they're fucking, they're teenagers. They don't have all the answers. And so, you know, there was a sense in which I guess this book's marketing was a resounding success with me in as much as I, I feel like I was very much on the same wavelength with, with what, now of course I'm blanking on all, all other names. Uh, Brandon Choi, J. Scott Campbell, and Jim Lee were trying to do you know, with this, with this comic. I mean, I was at the right age to appreciate it. You know, I mean, like if this book were were to come out today, I, I just don't think I've got, I don't know, the emotional context to connect with this, with this comic, the way that it, the way that the creators intended it to be. I mean, they intended it to be a very, well, these days we would call it, I guess, millennial. I don't know type of a comic is basically a comic for millennials but i don't know it's i just i dig it is what i'm saying i mean this is it's just a nice little moment it's all all of this thing it's just a nice little comic i really get into it and you know it it, that's and that's really the main reason why it kind of blows my mind when people i guess shit talk what image comics was all about in the 90s. In fact, I'm going to float a little conspiracy theory out there, and if any of you disagree with this, I want you to say so. I want you to let me know. Basically, though, my little conspiracy theory is if Rob Liefeld had never joined Image Comics, my opinion is that Image would be very well-remembered, you know? I think that when people make fun of Image Comics, what they're really doing is making fun of Rob Liefeld's comics. Because I think Rob Liefeld, whether anybody knows it or not, there's a sense in which he was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Does that make sense? You know, he was the guy that, I guess... He was... When people think about these sort of over-the-top, very... I don't know, just very Marvelized type of image comics, for lack of a better expression. He's, I find it that every single time, what they always talk about is a Rob Liefeld comic. You know, so my view is that if Rob Liefeld had actually stayed at Marvel, and then Image was started up without him, I think Image might actually be more, I think it would be better remembered and more highly regarded in its early days than it is right now. So, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it just, it, you know, I, I just, I look at, in general, the stuff that was coming out of, say, Wildstorm Studios or Todd McFarlane or, or wherever else, and a lot of the the excesses that people associate with Image Comics in, in their infancy, 
it's not as bad as people want to say, except with Rob Liefeld, yeah, it it's fucking, it's as bad as people say. So, anyway, that's just my opinion. If you feel otherwise, by all means, let me know. Email me, trennismagnus at gmail.com. But that's just the way that I, the way that I feel about it. Now, issue number five ends with, a, with grunge breaking the, the fourth wall. He's like he's folding over the comic book page and saying, Hey, you still here? Well, the adventure's not over yet. Be on the lookout for Gen 13 number zero, coming soon. And if that ain't enough for you, we'll be back in early 1995 with the Gen 13 regular series. Till then, later dudes. And it's... I always got the impression that, you know, Gen 13 started off as a miniseries, and then partway through, somebody decided, you know what? This is... This is a very successful series it's a very fun miniseries this is going to become an ongoing comic and I'm going to save my thoughts actually for the ongoing comic later on just because you know I think I may be getting into a little bit of a can of worms with all that suffice it to say though I don't know when I'm going to come back to talk about the Gen 13 ongoing series I can, I can tell you, it's not going to be anytime soon. Be sure of that. But uh, I really don't know when I'm going to have a chance to, to talk about it. So I will talk about it. It will be sometime in the future, like pretty far ahead in the future. But I am going to talk about the ongoing Gen 13 series at least at some point. So anyway, so I think that's a pretty good place for me to, to leave off. Now, this series... It's all about image. It continues next week. I'm going to be joined, at least the plan right now, is for me to be joined by Jeff Dope from Dinner for Geeks fame so that he and I can talk about Spawn issues one through four. So come back for that. But the way that it is right now, I don't know that I want to talk about everything else that's going to be in this all about image series just because some of this stuff may end up, I guess, falling by the wayside. I don't know. But uh, we'll just have to see how things turn out. But uh, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release serving as expendable agents 
for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Yeah.